Welcome to the Art of Curation, Flipboard show about the art and science of selection. I'm your host, Mia Qualiarello. I'm a digital curator, community builder, and Flipboard's head of creators. Each episode, I interview tastemakers from different fields who excel at the art of curation. How do they get started? How do they organize themselves? How do they curate for impact and more? Because if you think about it, curation is everywhere. Whether it's a collection for a hobby, a bookshelf, or a meetup, curation is the DNA that makes or breaks experiences. In fact, it's hard to fathom life in this information age without the art of curation. Today, I'm talking to Julia Liu, the editor-in-chief of The Collector, a site that broadens people's understanding of arts and collectibles through curated articles, reviews, trends, events, news, and more. In this interview, Julia talks about the difference between collecting and curating and shares what it's like to create interconnected rabbit holes that go deep on artists, art, archaeology, and ancient history. Here she is. Julia, it's so great to be talking to you. I've long wanted to know who is behind the collector, and I'm finally finding out. Hello. It's great to be here. So let's start with a little bit about the collector itself. Um, For people who don't know, what is the site all about? Um, The Collector has really evolved a lot in the almost two years that we've been up. It is a, it's really an educational resource. Um, We collect articles from writers from all over the world who write on topics um, on art, on ancient history, medieval history, modern history, um, and we aim to be a a really diverse and eclectic um, place for students, art artists, art uh, aficionados to come together and uh, just honestly, truly learn more about what they're interested in. How did you get involved with the collector? I got involved with the collector first as a writer. Um, I was hired to write an article about JMW Turner, which you can still read on the website. And uh, my article was so well received that I was offered a position as an editor. And now I am the editor in chief, which means that I read every single article and I'm involved in a lot of the post-processing. So what's your personal relationship to collecting? Mm, uh I have a background in architecture, and I personally am a collector of books. I also uh, do some work in publishing. Um, And I think that in my role at The Collector, my position on collecting has really changed a lot because I've learned so much in this role. Um, I think that collecting is really personal, and I think that there are collections that, you know, others can understand and collections that others don't understand. And my, my opinion is like, who cares what other people thinks about your collections? It's really all about what you care about, what you love, what you're interested in. And I want to really democratize like the idea of collecting, that it's not only for people who have a lot of money who, you know, collect ancient artifacts or shoes or expensive watches. It's like you can collect ideas, you can collect uh, artists, you can collect favorite things. Tell me a little bit about your book collection. 
Um, so I'm looking at it now. My book collection, there's a lot of journals. Um, so I have a huge stack of Paris reviews. I read a lot of fiction. Um, I have like some huge architecture books. Um, I have a I have a small dictionary collection that I really love. And oh, magazines. I my favorite architectural magazine is Pin Up. Highly recommend if you haven't heard of it. Um, I have some architectural monographs and a lot of books on sociopolitics and space. Have you always been a collector? I think so. I think everyone is in some way, shape, or form. I think as as long as you, I mean, all you really need is to like something, right? All you really need is a little bit of passion and a collection can be, you know, as small as three special items. It doesn't have to be massive. It doesn't have to be like worth millions of dollars as long as it's special to you. That's all that really counts, I think. How do you think collecting differs from curating? Curating is completely different. Curating is, um, it's a presentation, right? Um, a collection can be, you know, you have 26 letters in the alphabet, but a curation of those letters forms a name, right? Or a title or a pronoun. And curating is selecting from a collection what you want to present to someone else. It could be to answer a question. It could be to broaden a horizon. It could be to point out, you know, the 10 weird things you didn't know about something. And I think that curation is important because you're basically highlighting the things you want someone to know about your collection. So when you think about what your mission is at The Collector, how much of it is curation? I think we are thinking more about curation as we move forward. Our goal for a long time was to publish a wide variety of subjects and topics. Now we're hitting the point where, okay, we, we've covered a lot of ground, but now we want to get into the weeds. Like we want to get into the gritty stuff of history, of artists' lives, of, you know, connecting different artists in different times and spaces to each other. And I think that one of our new goals is to uh, curate the next, the next evolution of articles and uh, resources that we publish to kind of broaden the collections that we have. So it's, it's kind of a reverse curation in that way. It's like, instead of picking from the collection that we have, we're picking what to add to our collection. You have a background in architectural history and theory. So how important is it that collectors approach their passion with some kind of foundational knowledge versus just kind of going with what they're attracted to? Um, basically, what happens at the collector is that we have writers from all over the world. It's pretty remarkable. And it really establishes an amazing um, position to for them to write whatever they want, right? So 
most of our, I mean, not most, all of our writers are vetted. They have degrees in history or art or philosophy. And, um, you know, we trust them to write about something that they are interested in. And we trust them to write it with expertise and knowledge and skill so that we can add their voice to, to the collector. The collector is not one voice, it's not published under one name. It's everyone's voices. And I think it's really important for us to be very aware of what we're editing when we uh, are reviewing articles. I really try not to exert a heavy hand on as an editor. Um, I just want to, you know, take someone's words, process it so that readers of our generation can understand it and let it be read for, for itself. It's not every day that you hear about the curation process that, as you said, is beautifully democratic. So how does that actually work when you have people with strong points of view and a lot of background knowledge? How do you gain consensus on what you want to put forward? You know, we've had some really strange topics, um, but what we ask when we start with the writers for them to make a proposal, right? And at that point, you know, there's there's a gate of curation. There's a gate where we say, okay, do we like this? Are we interested or not? Um, and, you know, I will admit that the writer is probably, you know, curating their own perspective for us. They're presenting to us what we think we'll like. And they're writing for us and the general public what they think people will like. So, I mean, maybe it's wrong to say that we're getting like the unfiltered uh, like train of thought or perspective or collection, but we have a team of editors who review everything. We have, you know, this huge team of writers. And if we, if any one person feels that something is unpublishable, then, you know, we'll talk about it. What do you look for in a contributor on your team? I look for charisma. I look for a passion. Um, I look for someone who can essentially explain something that they're so passionate about in a way that like a sixth grader can understand it. Um, because we're not only talking about knowledge, we're talking about writing skill too, right? I, that's, I think that's really important. So how do you ensure that you have a really great diversity of perspectives on your team? By pinpointing not only what we have, but what we're looking for. Um, and I think, you know, just in the fact that our writers are from all over the world, like they inherently have broad perspectives. I think we have, I mean, almost all of our writers are from outside of the United States, which is really remarkable. You know, I'm getting articles about topics that I never learned in, you know, my American high school. So it's really remarkable to hear you know, what other people around the world are learning about, what they have in their history. This ties back to 
our motives in, in expanding and curating our future, we are going to aim to like diversify our collections and grow and broaden them. What areas do you want to cover in this new model? Um, it depends on who you ask on our team, of course. Our ancient history sections are really popular, but I'm more of a contemporary and modern artist myself. So I would really, really love to see our collection grow into contemporary artists around the world. I think that'd be really exciting or emerging artists around the world. Um, I would also like to see more, um, more articles on women, more articles on cultures outside of Europe. And I, I'm, you know, also completely open. I don't know what I don't know, you know? Completely. And I'd love to know what um, that you've learned from your staff that surprised you. You talked Um, about like, yeah, this international perspective, like what are some things that you've, you've learned from your team? Well, everyone on, on our editorial team also started as writers. So they were excellent writers. They, they, you know, delivered the best articles. And then we decided, hey, you know, we love your work. Will you edit for us? And so, I mean, I've just learned from them in what they've written, right? And I've learned from their commitment and their devotion and passion. I mean, I don't know if I can, you know, tell you ABC fact that I've learned from my editors, but we've grown to, you know, form this really wonderful community of people who love to work on, you know, this educational platform. And when you have a difference of opinion, how do you solve those disputes? Great question. So what I also love about our editors is that they're all experts in their own field too, right? Like we have an editor for ancient history and he's the ancient history expert. So, you know, if he says something very knowledgeable, then I trust him, you know, it's like, I'm not the ancient history expert. So I trust him to point us in the right direction. Same with our philosophy editor, same with our contemporary art editor. They're all experts and they're very knowledgeable. So, you know, I I can't dispute the expert, right? I'm just here to be the glue for everyone. And to that point, how do you orchestrate the big picture? So you have all these experts feeding into you. Then how do you craft that body of work? I think in that way, the collector is sort of becoming this encyclopedia, which is kind of awesome and scary and daunting, right? I don't want to be a dictator, right? I don't want to tell our writers what they should be writing, um, because if they're not going to be interested in a topic and I force them to write something, then the writing is just not going to be that good. And that's a fact. So. That's why I think we feel really importantly about letting our writers write about what they're interested in, um, because the writing quality is better. We can, you know, host more of a dialogue with our audience, and it just makes for better content. Some articles that you do, you're curating facts for something like 10 facts about sex in ancient Egypt they didn't teach you in school. Mm-hmm. 
So when you're curating information like that, how do you go about picking and verifying those facts? Um, good question. And I think this also ties back to what I said about our authors being the experts. I mean, they're presenting such a specific perspective, right? 10 facts about sex in ancient Egypt that they didn't teach you in school. Well, then it's like, first of all, whose school, right? Um, and I think that um, articles like that are both broad and specific. They cover a lot. They cover a good range, but it's trying to cover ground that you may not have seen in school. I think it's, I don't know, pretty simple. As far as fact checking goes, it's like, you know, if, if we can understand that these are factual, uh, points of information, then, I think that the only uh, point to argue is what you learned in school. Just yesterday, I discovered my new favorite artist on your site, Fred Tomaselli. Um, and that was an amazing retrospective of his career by one of your writers, Sabine Kaspari. Mm -hmm. So when you curate someone's life, how do you think differently about putting together that information? When you think about an artist... Uh, they're they're not just their work. They are a person. They have a family. They have a life. And I think that what we try to do in The Collector when we write about artists is that we present their lives behind the art because they are so closely linked. You can't have the art without the artist. We're not talking about like technical craft. You know, we want to learn more about this person's uh, family life. We want to know more about the, con the conditions in which they lived and what they cared about, because that informs not only the artists that they are, but who they eventually turn out to be. So when we're presenting retrospectives um, of an artist's life, you know, you can follow this evolution of their art through the history of their life, which is really beautiful and magical. What do you hope that people feel when they experience something from the collector? I hope that they feel that the collector is an approachable resource for art and history. I think making art and history approachable and readable and friendly is really important to me. That's part of why the democratic process is also so important to me, because I'm not interested in presenting uh, textbook information to everyone. Um, I want, I want, I don't know, like a student in school to read something, like get attached to a fact that they find so interesting or so weird that they become interested in. I want them to like follow this wormhole of artists and uh, or history or historical points that are all linked to each other. I want the collector to be easy to read. I want anyone to understand what we're saying and then, uh, you know, keep coming back for more. Yeah, in a way, you're packaging history for a modern audience. So what kinds of things do you think about when curating these historical artifacts for a digital audience? 
Great question. We think about this a lot as a publishing platform on the internet. Um, images are really important and the size of paragraphs are really important. I mean, think about when you're scrolling through your phone and what you're more inclined to read versus not. Like a huge chunk of text is very intimidating. And uh, in the similar way, it's like if you break up a paragraph into individual lines, that's also just terrible to read. Um, so we tried to, you know, have, uh, you know, nice chunks of text. We try to, to avoid like uh, SAT vocabulary or like super, um, like, I don't know how to, what the word is for like um, super complicated vocabulary. And then I want to talk about the historical record. How do you ensure that you stay true to the historical record and or that you do your due diligence and revise the record where it needs to be? This is my favorite question because what I would like to point out is like, whose historical record are we talking about? Is it the Western perspective, the Eastern perspective? Is it the colonial perspective? And um, I, I am not super interested in obeying the laws and rules of the quote unquote historical perspective, because I think that in modern times, we're really challenging that. Um, you know, we're trying to focus more on women artists who have, who we've never heard before. So it's like, you know all about Jackson Pollock, but you don't know anything about Lee Krasner, his wife, even though she bolstered him throughout his entire career. And she was an incredible artist herself, you know? So it's like, you know, we, everyone knows the Jackson Pollock at the MoMA, but children or students are not always learning about Lee Krasner, who was an incredible artist in herself. So, you know, we are challenging the quote unquote historical record because there's more to history than what is, has been traditionally documented. How do you cover your bases? Like how do you pursue all these different possible angles that we could take to look at history? The way we start is by hitting the big notes, right? We we cover the Jackson Pollocks, we cover the Claude Monets, and then once we have that covered, that sets a good base for the people they influenced, the people who influenced them, the people around them, their um, colleagues, um, and like every like it just kind of radiates into this bubble right and the bubble grows larger and larger and soon enough like bubbles start to cross over they start to touch right so we can create these cross connections and hopefully the collector will have enough information that we can like create a link between any two artists in history which would be super awesome that would be so cool does anything like that exist um, I think something might exist on Google, like they have a, like a web, but they did come out with this really awesome art history timeline last year, which was a really awesome resource for students in the pandemic. Um, I haven't checked it recently, but 
I, if I remember correctly, it was not exhaustive, which is really hard to do in the first place. When you were talking too about uh, the wife of Jackson Pollock, I was thinking of a great New York Times piece. I'm sure you saw it called The Woman Who Made Vincent Van Gogh about his sister-in-law, who you could accredit with making him what he is today. And as you were saying, like she was totally not part of Vincent Van Gogh's story that we that we know. So mm-hmm. I love that you're thinking about that actively as you present the information on the collector. Yeah, I think also with artists, it's their parents are also really important too. And as as we learn in modern psychology, people are products of their parents in one way or another. So, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense when an artist has parents who are artists. And if they don't, then it's, oh, the story becomes a little more curious. It's like, oh, well, then where do they get this passion from? You know? What's hard about your work? Um, what's hard is... I don't know what's hard. I could tell you that it's hard to find time to read every single article. Um, I could tell you that it's hard to find or make uh, original content. It's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, because one of our goals is to like break the mold of art history and art documentation it's like okay it's like we are taking what we've learned and we're you know breaking that mold for ourselves first it's like okay well you know I learned a b and c but you know like what else do I want to know what else could I be interested in that I want to share with someone else it's really easy to write about things we know it's just so much harder to write about things we're less familiar with or that the world is less familiar with, because we're also citing um, like historians and experts as well. So if there isn't sufficient documentation or information about something that isn't historically uh, recorded, that makes our job a little harder, not impossible. In terms of tracking ideas and sources, how do you organize yourself? Um, so we, we use a lot of spreadsheets at the collector. Um, we track our ideas, um, communally because, because we're working with so many artists and we have a lot of input. Um, we basically have this huge spreadsheet of all of the ideas that we might want to have someone write for the collector. Um, and then for sources, um, we have also a list of go-to sources, Um, but you know, that's always expanding and we're always being introduced to new amazing sources from our writers. Are there any sources that you stay away from? Like where does Wikipedia sort of rank in your source list? Uh, Wikipedia (laughs) is easily like a (laughs) non-starter. Um, we will never aside from Wikipedia. It's just unreliable. It's like, I, I don't know, I could edit the Wikipedia page about dogs and describe them as cats and no one would know. <laughs> um, 
so yeah wikipedia is on the bottom other things that are on the bottom um i mean i don't i don't want to call out sources i don't think that's fair no, no, no. I, I appreciate your perspective on, on Wikipedia because I think that's like the first place many of us go. So it's really interesting to hear that that might not always be the best place to start. Yeah, of course. It's like, what if the collector is your first place to start if you're trying to find something about art or, or art history or ancient history? Go to thecollector.com. Skip <laughs> Wikipedia. Completely. That's your new tagline. Yeah. How does how does Flipboard fit into your content strategy? So uh, what I love about Flipboard is that it is um, it kind of serves as a teacher in a classroom, right? Flipboard basically. I mean, I don't know. You can probably tell this better than I can. But it takes all these resources and then channels them to each reader based on what they like. Right. So whatever the algorithm is, you know, the, the magic at Flipboard, um, somehow the collector is, I mean, not somehow, but the collector is fulfilling this portion of your audience who's interested in art, art history and ancient history, which is awesome. It's, you know, you're not going to funnel Wikipedia articles to your general readers so it's really awesome that we can you know publish an article every day and send that to readers directly and you're also making great use of our storyboard tool i love how you're packaging stories into these mini collections um, that are also i think very loved on flipboard oh thank you i can't take credit for that but i'm really glad that that's working well I'd love to end each of these interviews by knowing like what's on your culture picks list. Like what shows, books, movies, podcasts would you recommend that everyone experience because they've made your life better or brighter? Wow. I was really thinking about this a lot last night. Um, and I could go on forever. Um, but I will try to keep it brief <laughs> and, um, but I will go in chronological order from like past to present, right? So one overarching huge um, thing that is really has influenced me in a positive way is theater, which I think is super underrated in young people these days. Uh, there's a theater in New York called The Public, and I used to go there every single week you know, on a student discount back when I was still a student. And just the magic of being delivered a story with strong visual and audio design is just so powerful and magical. So love, we love theater. And um, okay, let's skip to the short stuff. So um, I recently read, um, Michael Lewis's book, his latest book on the pandemic, which sounds boring, like, okay, pandemic, we get it. But this was actually my first, the first time reading a book of Michael Lewis's who also wrote like Moneyball and The Big Short. And he is a fantastic writer and I will now read everything that he ever writes. He just is so good at crafting stories out of um, like just very factual events in history. And he puts 
faces and names to things that happen um, and things that happen and have like uh, affected a lot of people, right? So we think of the pandemic as this like scary virus that originated in China, but his book really, you know, goes into the story of the people, the heroes in the United States who like took charge of it and really like helped us, um, you know, gain safe ground. Um, and something else that I'm reading that I would love to share is that I started reading Clara and the Sun by Kazuro Ishiguro. It's a fictional novel about so I'm I'm not that far in but it's about um what they call AFs or artificial friends and it's written from the perspective of an artificial friend who is she is basically like a robot um who sits in a bookstore waiting for a child to come pick her up and take her home and I think it's I mean, I just started it. I think it's an amazing book so far. I'm really, really looking forward to finishing it. If you want to connect with Julia and the team at The Collector, go to thecollector.com slash contact hyphen us. You should also follow them on Flipboard at flipboard.com slash at sign the collector. Thank you to Rosanna Caban for editing. If you want to find out more about Flipboard, where enthusiasts are curating stories they recommend across thousands of interests, download the app or head over to our website at flipboard.com. Anyone can be a curator on Flipboard. Simply create an account and start flipping to share your ideas with the world.